morning. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, the ninth chapter. Luke chapter 9, we're in a series of messages called Come to the Table, looking at the table conversations of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and how he made disciples in doing that. And today, I actually don't know if there was a table, but there was food. It didn't take place inside a house. It took place out in a desolate place. Luke chapter 9, and we're going to begin reading in verse 10. And when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. And taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the multitudes were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. And the day began to decline. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat, for here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them reclined to eat in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, had them all reclined. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them, And broke them, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, twelve baskets full. The feeding of the five thousand, or as some scholars believe, the feeding of the fifteen thousand or more when you add in women and children. In fact, I think Josephus may put the number as high as twenty to 25,000, but he's been known to exaggerate a little bit. But nevertheless, this is a major turning point in Jesus' life. Because in Luke, as well as in the other three gospel accounts, this marks the apex and the conclusion of Jesus' Galilean ministry. His ministry up there in the north, where he had kind of had his headquarters in Capernaum, is coming to a close now. This is the high point, and it's the end of that ministry. And so this meal marks the beginning of Jesus' final year of ministry. In a year's time, he would be dead. So from here, Jesus' ministry would move over to the coastal cities of Tyre and Sidon, And Caesarea Philippi, where he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Simon Peter finally replied, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Then it would move across the Jordan to the east, the Transjordan area. They would make their way down where they would enter into Judea and ultimately Jerusalem, where he would be crucified. Now, according to John's account of this in John 6, verse 4, The Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand, which may account for why there were thousands of people surrounding Jesus 
that had probably already planned to take the time off to head south down to Jerusalem. And so those people are available and they're surrounding Jesus. You will recall there were three required feasts that every male Jew was required to attend. Passover, 50 days later would be Pentecost, and then later on would be the Feast of Tabernacles when they would live in booths or tabernacles commemorating how they did that in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt. And yet, even though it was required for every male Jew, Jesus didn't go to this Passover. It's almost as if he kind of has his own Passover meal with the thousands that were following him around the lake. And so he speaks to them about the kingdom of God, and John's account tells us that he told them, I am the bread of life. Here he is feeding them with bread, these barley loaves that he's multiplying in his hands, but he's telling them, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. And a year later, he did exactly that. Now, remember also that the disciples, if you read the first part of this chapter, the twelve have just returned from their first mission trip. Jesus had sent them out, and he had given them some strange instructions. He said, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Don't take anything with you. You see that in the first six verses of this chapter. And when the apostles return, they give an account to him of all that they had done and the miracles they had performed. And, and knowing these men, don't you think that maybe each one was trying to outdo the next one with their stories? Oh, you think that's great. Wait till you listen to what I did. You know, just, I just kind of imagine that taking place. So the twelve were excited as well as being worn out, they, but they can't wait to tell Jesus all about their mission trip. And so they've just returned from that. That's part of the context of this miracle. And another part of this is that the disciples of John have just come to Jesus to tell him that Herod murdered John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And so Jesus has that on his thoughts and upon his heart as well. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus sought to have some quiet time with the twelve. This along with the fact that Mark 6.31 says, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. They were being peopled to death. I mean, it's a great problem to have, you know. But it's almost like those times when the church is booming and the attendance is great, and you're wondering, what are we going to do with all these people? Well, it's a great problem to have. They were being peopled to death to the extent they couldn't even find time for a snack. But that's also very draining. Ministry can be like that. 
And then remember also that this miracle is told in all four Gospels. In Matthew 14, Mark 6, here in Luke 9, and in John 6. This is the only miracle aside from the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It's the only miracle told in all four Gospels, which makes it special. So that's the miracle as we read it. A little bit of the context that surrounds it. But now let's jump into this. What lessons can we learn from the feeding of the 5,000? I want to work our text backwards this morning, from back to front, in talking about these lessons. Here's the first one. God can meet our needs. He can meet our needs. Verse 17 says, they all ate and were satisfied. Now think of this in the flow of Luke's gospel. Jesus has showed himself to be the Lord of nature. So that when he spoke a word, peace be still, the sea just became completely calm. That's in chapter 8. We see him also as the Lord of supernature or the supernatural because he can cast out evil spirits with a single word. Again in chapter 8, verse 26. He is the Lord of providence, ordering all of life and the way it happens, its times, its meetings, whatever to accomplish his will. We've seen him as the Lord of life as he restores a woman's health in chapter 8. The woman that had had an issue of blood for 12 years that no one could help. We also see that he is the Lord of death, that death has no power over him as he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead in Luke chapter 8. And then we come here into Luke chapter 9 and we see him as the Lord of creation. Just as he created the heavens and the earth, so here this material creation, this, this multiplying of the loaves and fish just flowed from his hands as he did that. God can meet our needs. Every type of need. Not just our physical needs, but he can meet every kind of need. He can meet our emotional needs. I mean, when I'm down and depressed, he can lift me up. Read through the Psalms. How many times David was just depressed and discouraged, trying to run away from Saul, trying to escape from his enemies, uh, the depression that he had after he had committed sin with Bathsheba. Read the 51st Psalm. And he prays there in that psalm, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Let the bones that thou hast broken rejoice again. God can meet our emotional needs. He can lift us up. And praise God that he can meet my spiritual needs as well. Because every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us deserves an eternity in hell. But because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we can be saved. He took our place. He bore our penalty. He paid the price himself for our salvation. He became our atoning sacrifice. God can meet our needs. And he met the needs of these people in our text today. Here's a second lesson we can learn. Table grace matters. Table grace matters, folks. Verse 16 says, 
He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the multitude. You'll notice this miracle didn't happen until after Jesus prayed. Table grace matters. One of the things that's I know very special to Bonnie and I, uh, and Jamie's got to witness this as well, when Ryan, Amanda, and the kids come back and they're, they're spending time with us, and we try to figure out a way to set everybody around the table. When we finally sit down to eat, here's what happens. Not so much with Justice and Mariah and Galilee anymore as they've gotten older. In fact, Justice is a teenager now. Wow. But with Gideon and Titus and Nathaniel especially, we sit down and immediately out of their mouths comes these words. Can I pray? Can I pray? And so we'll always have them pray at the table. And it's a special thing to hear them pray. Because they, they're grateful that they got to come to grandpa and grandma's and they're thankful for the food. And they're, they pray that they will be good and they pray that God will keep all the people safe. And, and I wish I had a video that I could show you, okay? But it's a special time. But table grace matters. Jesus is in their midst. Around him are the 12 apostles. And Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven. He probably gave the traditional blessing that has been preserved in the Mishnah, which says, Blessed be you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. Which was probably followed by a thunderous 15,000 plus voice, Amen. Even on the night he was betrayed, in that upper room, during the Passover meal, Jesus took bread and did what? Gave thanks. And he took the cup after supper and gave thanks. Table grace matters, folks. Take time to pray before you eat. Here's a third lesson. Organization is a way to get things done. You, you think, these aren't real big spiritual things, Bill. But they're good lessons to learn. Organization's a way to get things done. In verses 14 and 15, it says that there were about 5,000 men. We're not counting the women and the children there. He said to his disciples, have them reclined in groups of about 50 each. They did so, had them all reclined. Well, that permitted a couple things to happen. First of all, it allowed the disciples who were taking the food that Jesus was creating in, in his hands it gave them a way to, to distribute it among all the people and to get in and out among them because they were all in groups. So it allowed that to happen. It also kept from happening a long line with people trying to butt in line or elbowing or doing whatever, you know. It, 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 so, so it just didn't become a, a madhouse there. There wasn't any greediness. There was no elbowing. There wasn't any confusion of any sort that was taking place. Organization is a way to get things done. And Jesus was organized. Here's a fourth lesson. Serving God is both exhilarating and exhausting. In verses 10 and 11, it says, When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done, and taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. 
But the multitudes were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. So the apostles come back. They're pumped up, but probably physically drained from their mission trip. Jesus has just gotten word that Herod had murdered his cousin, John the Baptist. And Mark told us that all these people were crowding in on him to the point that they couldn't even find time to eat. And so Jesus wants to get them alone for some rest, some relaxation, maybe for some private teaching himself, a time just for themselves. And so they set out on this boat across the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. They're heading east towards Bethsaida, Julius, near where the Jordan River empties into the Sea of Galilee. It was about four miles to Bethsaida by direct sail. It was about eight miles by foot. So when the apostles got in the boat and set their sail, the people saw that they set, were setting sail towards the east or the northeast, towards Bethsaida. And so those that were able, the younger ones, the strong ones, probably began to charge northwest along the edge of the lake probably telling their friends, you know, as they went through some of these villages along the way, to come with them. The end result that was, was that thousands converged on the apostles' retreat site. Noisy expectation taking place. Mark's account tells us that many people got there ahead of Jesus and the twelve. So much for some time away. And I would imagine the apostles were thinking, oh no, what are all these people doing here? How did they get, how did they know? But not so with Jesus. Luke says he welcomed them and began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Serving God is both exhilarating and exhausting. How many of you serve every year during vacation Bible school? Let me see your hands. Okay. And at the end of the week, and all the kids were thinking, man, this has been a great week. I'm glad it's over. You know what I'm saying? It's exhilarating. It pumps you up. But it can be exhausting as well. And that's the way... That's the way serving God can be. Here's the last lesson I want to give you. Our inadequacy is overcome by Christ's sufficiency. Our inadequacy is overcome by Christ's sufficiency. So Jesus has been ministering for hours to the people when, when they come ashore. He's teaching them, preaching to them about the kingdom of God. He's healing any that need healing. So a lot is taking place with Jesus. But the shadows are lengthening as the day begins to draw to a close. It was springtime, probably mid-April. The sun sets at about 6 o'clock p.m. at that time of year in Palestine. So imagine that it's probably 4.30 to 5.30 in the afternoon, early evening. And the people are getting hungry. They've been there for hours. So the disciples tell Jesus in verse 12, 
Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat, for here we are in a desolate place. How many of you would have been so bold as to tell Jesus what to do? <laughs> well, these guys were. I mean, maybe after returning from their mission trip where they had worked miracles, that they are full of themselves, they thought they could give Jesus orders. And yet it makes me wonder if Jesus had enabled them to perform miracles on their mission trip, why didn't one of these guys step up and say, hey, I'll take care of this? And yet not a single one of them did. Why didn't they think they could do it? I think it just demonstrates how inadequate their ideas still were of themselves as well as the person of Christ. They'd been with him for well over a year now, almost a couple years. They had seen him perform repeated miracles. And regardless of the situation, they had never ever seen him unable to meet a need. And yet, even though they had witnessed all these miracles, evidently it never occurred to them that Christ would do another one this time. Are we any different than the apostles? But yet, Jesus has his disciples all set up, and he's about to drop a bombshell on them. He says to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. Has God ever asked you to do something that just seems too big? Has he ever done that to you? You give them something to eat. Uh, what do you mean, Jesus? Uh, you want me to go down to Casey's and pick up some pizzas? You want me to make a run over to Walmart and, and pick something up from the deli? What do you mean, Jesus? What would you have done had you been one of the twelve and Jesus says, you give them something to eat? It'd be like someone sending you to El Paso, Texas and saying, you fix the border problem. Or like flying you to Russia and you walking into the Kremlin and saying, Mr. Putin, get out of Ukraine. Or going to Gaza and you can fill in the blank. Does God ever ask you to do something that just seems too big? And you say, I can't do this. Remember back in verses 1 to 6 of this chapter, Jesus sent them out on the mission trip, told them to take nothing with them. He put them in a position of dependence upon him and upon others because our inadequacy is overcome by Christ's sufficiency. Jesus tells the twelve, you give them something to eat. Now in John 6, in John's account of this, it says that Philip told him, where, no, or that Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And then it says in John 6, 6, and this he, Jesus, was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. 
it's fun to put all four gospel accounts together on this one. Jesus knew what he was going to do all along. But he's testing the faith of his disciples here. And Philip answered and said, well, 200 denarii, meaning 200 days of pay, that much bread wouldn't be sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. And that's when Andrew pipes up and says, well, there's a lad here that has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? And then comes the actual miracle. Jesus fed 5,000 men plus the women and the children, kept on giving the bread and the fish to the disciples to distribute to the people. He kept creating tons of barley cakes and fish right there between the palms of his hands. You talk about creation power. And back in verse 9 of Luke's account, it talks about King Herod who had been asking, who is this man about whom I hear such things? Well, the miracle answers that question. This man is the king who has come and will come again. His is the kingdom that has come and now we're privileged to be a part of in the church. So what is Jesus asking you to do that just seems overwhelming? Our inadequacy, it's overcome by Christ's sufficiency. This feeling of inadequacy, I, I don't know if you feel it. I do. I've been preaching the gospel for over 40 years, and i, I got to tell you, there are some Sundays where I get up and I don't think I have one more in me. I, I don't think I can do this again, Lord. My idiom, my way of talking is not contemporary. There have been times where I have preached a sermon and maybe used a particular little phrase or an idiom in my preaching to have my daughter Jamie later on say, Dad, you can't say that. Why not? Because here's what that means today. And what meant something fine as I grew up in my day means something totally different and not necessarily good in today's world. My idiom my way of talking isn't contemporary. I, I don't connect with everybody. I, I don't think I can do this, you know. I, and we all may sit there and think of things that, yeah, I don't know if I can witness to my neighbors, Lord. You want me to make disciples? I don't know if I've got that in me. I've got trouble just inviting them to church. God, what am I supposed to do? I, I didn't know that I'd have to live this part of my life without my spouse. You didn't tell me that. Or maybe you're looking at retirement. God, do, do I have enough? Are my funds sufficient or are they going to run out on me? What is it you're wrestling with? What do you do when God says you give them something to eat? Will you remember that your inadequacy is overcome by his sufficiency? I can't do it. But he can. And so today, maybe you need his strength to confess his name and walk down this aisle and accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you need his strength to walk into a baptistry and be immersed for the remission of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit.
His sufficiency overcomes my inadequacy. And we should praise God that it does. What is it, Linda, that you say, Judy Vano, we says? He does. God's got this. I don't know what decisions you may have that you'd like to make today. I don't know what the next step is in your journey of faith. But whatever that next step is, with his help, you can take that step. So why not take it today? Let's stand and see.